Well, contrary to popular belief, the life of a Christian is not one of surrender. At least it's not supposed to be. Uh, and yet if you've grown up in church, you've no doubt been taught to surrender your life to Christ. In fact, I'd wager you've heard that as a Christian uh, probably more times than you can remember. It is, in fact, one of the most common and oft-repeated ideas in contemporary Christendom, surrendering your life to Christ. We're told to lift our hands as a universal sign of surrender to God. We sing songs about surrender. In fact, it's hard these days to find a set of worship songs in church that doesn't include at least one call to surrender. And, of course, many of those are great songs, by the way, and they're certainly well-meaning. The problem is we are never told in all of biblical Scripture, not once, to surrender our lives to Christ. It's not in the Bible. I've talked about this before, but it bears repeating, and it's relevant to this story today, the fact that the concept of surrendering your life to Christ is actually unbiblical. Nowhere does the Bible teach us to surrender our lives to Christ. What the Bible does teach us over and over and over and over again is that we're supposed to submit our lives to Christ, and the difference is profound. Because listen, when a soldier surrenders, first of all, First of all, that is always done before the enemy. When a soldier surrenders, he bows before the enemy king, lays his weapons down, and says, I give up. When a soldier submits, he bows before his king, picks his weapons up, and says, what are my orders? Can you see the extreme difference between the two. Surrender is an act of resignation. Submission is a call to action. That's why God never calls us to surrender, because the last thing he ever wants us to do is give up. No, he wants us to get up, pick our weapons up, and get in the fight. We wonder why so much of the church is so weak and listless and ineffective today. It's because we're all too busy surrendering our lives to Christ like we're doing something great, something sacrificial, when actually it's just the opposite. You see, the easy thing to do is surrender, to lay our weapons down and then remain in this peaceful state of resignation while other people go out and fight the good fight. Look, the infinitely more difficult choice by far, the choice that requires deep personal sacrifice and ongoing commitment is to submit yourself to Christ because that means you have to get up and get in the fight, which is hard. Listen, it's messy. Sometimes you get bloodied and beat up. Sometimes you have to do exceptionally difficult things. You have to take ground. You have to go to battle with the enemy. You have to tear down strongholds and snatch others from the fire. In fact, the only thing that you never do when you're following Christ is surrender. The truth is, the overwhelming message of the Bible to Christians is never Surrender. 
And yet because this idea of surrendering all has become the mantra of the modern church, and it is a modern church phenomenon, that concept has permeated nearly everything that we say and do to the point that total surrender has become the ultimate goal for the modern Christian. And all the while, God is beating the drum of war calling us not to surrender, but to submission. Submission to follow our king into battle, to stand up and fight for the gospel, to fight for those who cannot fight for themselves, to fight for holiness in our own lives and in the lives of others, to fight for the truth, to fight for his kingdom to be established on earth as it is in heaven. I can't help I can't help but picture God as his own army of followers surrenders in mass before him. I can almost hear him saying, what are you doing? I never told you to surrender. I told you to put on the whole armor of God and take up your weapons and fight with me. Yes, I'll go before you. Yes, I will fight for you, of course. I will never leave you or forsake you, but I want you to follow me into the battle and fight the enemy with me. Surrender is not the way. And listen, when surrender becomes a part of the culture of the church, the church becomes feckless, impotent, weak, which is not God's design for us. And, and you want to know why? This is probably more important to understand now more than ever before, at least in our lifetime. It's because the culture around us is becoming more hostile toward the kingdom of God by the day. And if our posture is already one of surrender, then when the heat gets turned up on the church, we'll lay down and let the enemy walk right over us. You understand, by the way, I'm not talking about fighting with the world. We're supposed to rescue the world. No, I'm talking about fighting the dark spiritual forces of a very real enemy who has this world in his clutches. We're supposed to fight for the world, to save the lost by snatching them out of the fire, as Jude, the brother of Jesus, says. But we cannot do that if we're constantly resigning ourselves to a state of surrender, which, which without a doubt, uh, is a peaceful way to live. Uh, listen, your enemy won't fight you when you surrender to him. So yes, surrender is an easy way to achieve peace in your life as long as you don't mind being subjugated by the enemy. The problem is, that's not God's will for his people. No, his will is for us to get into the fight. As messy and risky and difficult and demanding as it may be, our king is calling us to stop surrendering and get in the fight, which is the very lesson God's people had to learn in this story today as we continue working our way through the book of 1 Samuel, where the people of God were convinced they could not face their enemy. And so they refused to get in the fight until one young man who had fully submitted his life to God refused to surrender to fear or to other people's opinions about how impossible it would be to win the battle or to the harsh reality of the sheer odds against them and so he simply picks up his weapons and marches straight into the fight reminding the rest of the people what it looked like to truly follow God no matter how scary it is no matter how many other people think you're crazy for doing what you're doing I bet Cody has a few people who think 
he's crazy for taking his wife and young children where he's going. Look, no matter how insurmountable the task may seem, I'm telling you, as long as you never surrender, there is no limit to how far God will lead you because he's not limited. So with that in mind, let's pick the story up where we left off last time and see uh, maybe we can gain some new perspective about, about why we should never surrender when it comes to truly living for Christ. Uh, let's turn where we, where we stopped last time, 1 Samuel, uh, Samuel chapter 17. And we're going to start with the first 11 verses. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the other side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side. Uh, excuse me, on the one side was the Philistines, on the other side was the Israelites, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his spear had weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. The valley of Elah was in the western foothills of Israel and stretched out between the Philistine territory in the west and Judah in the east. And it was a of this strategic location because whoever controlled the valley controlled access to the hill country of Judah. And so as the story opens up, we find the Philistines on a mountain on the northern side of the valley and the Israelites on a mountain on the southern side of the valley. And here they are on the brink of war. And it wasn't uncommon in the ancient Near East for commanders of opposing armies to select their, uh, their best fighter each uh, to engage in a death match with each other in order to avoid all-out war and also uh, to determine who the conquering army was without risking mass casualties on either side. And so the Philistines put forward a man named Goliath, a popular champion among his people. In fact, uh, archaeologists have unearthed pottery at the ancient site of Gath, Goliath's hometown, with the name Goliath inscribed on it. So he was a superstar among the Philistines, standing at six cubits in a span that's nine feet nine inches tall, impressive, uh, but certainly not unheard of in antiquity. We're told in Joshua 11 that the Anakim, a race of giants, lived in Gath, the same city Goliath was from. And of course, that was 400 years or so before this story. But it is certainly plausible that Goliath was descended from the same race of giant people. And even beyond those described in the scriptures, later uh, ancient historians such as Herodotus, uh, Diodorus Siculus, Pliny the Elder, others, uh, lots of others, they all mention in their writings people of at least seven cubits 
in height, which is taller than Goliath. And then, of course, even in modern times, we've had people like Robert Pershing Wadlow, who uh, was 8 feet 11 inches tall at the time of his death in 1940. So here he was, this Philistine champion, this massive human being, armed to the teeth and experienced in warfare with upwards of 200 pounds of the finest armor and the most intimidating iron and bronze weapons available, calling out the Israelites to send out their champion to face him, which was supposed to be none other than their king, Saul. Remember back in chapter 9, we're told that Saul was head and shoulders taller and more impressive physically than anyone else among the Israelite people. And he had proven himself in battle time and again. So Saul was the Israelite equivalent of Goliath, or as close as they could get. And as far as they knew, Saul was the best they had. He was their greatest hope. And you can bet they fully expected Saul to answer the call and save them from uh, the Philistines and their giant. And yet after Goliath issues his challenge, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Verse 11 says, When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Notice that includes Saul, greatly afraid, right along with everyone else. In fact, that word afraid, it's Yahweh in the ancient Hebrew. It's the most common adjective used to describe Saul throughout his entire life story in the Bible. You see, sadly, it is fear that characterizes Saul's reign as king more than anything else, the effect of which over the years had worked its way through all the people to the point that surrendering to their enemies was nearly inevitable because they'd already surrendered to fear. But listen, that was not God's will. For his people then, and I'm telling you, it is not his will for his people today. God's will is for you to never surrender to fear. No matter how terrifying whatever you're facing may seem to be, never surrender to fear. Okay, look, to experience fear is okay. To surrender to fear is not. When Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus replied on this rock, in other words, on this profession of faith in Christ, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Matthew 16, 18. Now listen, if you read that phrase, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it in the ancient Greek, the literal rendering of that phrase is the gates of Hades shall not withstand it. That's actually... A very significant difference because when you read it the way most English translations have it, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, against the church. It sounds like Jesus was saying, look, no matter what the enemy comes at you with, he will not prevail against you. But when you read it in the Greek, it's the other way around. I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not withstand it. You understand, Jesus was not saying we will be able to withstand the enemy. No, he was saying the enemy will not be able to withstand us because his will for the church is for us to be on the offensive, not huddled up together in fear, hoping we can survive the attacks of the enemy. It's the other way around. The enemy's supposed to be running from us, unable to withstand the constant onslaught of Christians who are relentlessly taking ground back from him, tearing down his strongholds and snatching lost people from the fires of hell before it's too late. 
Jesus was saying, don't wait for the fight to come to you. You take the fight right up to the gates of hell. And no matter what happens, no matter how beat up or bloodied you may be, never surrender. It makes, it makes the next verse, the very next thing Jesus said, make a lot more sense. Verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In other words, here's the keys. Here's everything I've got. I'm giving it all to you. Go get in the fight. Can you see the difference? It's an offensive battle strategy against our enemy, not a defensive one. But I'm telling you, it only works when you get in the fight, which you will never do if you're too scared to fight. And the enemy knows that, by the way. He's not stupid. He knows he cannot win in a straight-up fight with you. The enemy knows he's guaranteed to lose that fight every single time. That's why he uses fear against you, because if he can make you fearful enough to not even try and fight, well, then it's just as good as you surrendering to him, which is just where he had the Israelites in our story, they wouldn't even attempt to fight the Philistines because of one ridiculously tall guy with a really big mouth. And so right there on that mountain, cowering in fear, the enemy had God's people right where he wanted them, surrendered to fear. And listen, uh, if there's something in your life today that has you too afraid to get in the fight, too afraid to take the fight, to the enemy, right up to the gates of hell, instead of waiting and hoping maybe he doesn't attack you, well, then he's got you right where he wants you. Surrender to fear. I'm not, I'm not good enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not wealthy enough. I'm not qualified enough. I'm not righteous enough. All the lies the enemy tries to convince us of, we entertain those between our ears until those lies begin to seep into our hearts and we believe them to be true and the will to fight turns into surrender to fear. But that's not who you are. Jesus said the gates of hell will not be able to withstand you. From an unknown author, every weakness you have is an opportunity for God to show his strength in your life. Let's keep reading. Verses 12 through 30. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, the next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. Remember that detail. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand and see if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. That's some proof of life. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. 
And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he's come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? In case you didn't catch, that's a dig against David. I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you've come down to see the battle. David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. So the standoff continues. For 40 straight days, the two armies took up their positions, drawing up their battle lines and shouting their war cries. And for 40 straight days, Goliath would walk out into the open ground and lay down his challenge. And for 40 straight days, the Israelites would cower in fear. Zero progress. And because of the, this protracted standoff, the army's running low on food and uh, supplies and rations, so the families of the troops would help uh, provide for the soldiers. So Jesse, David's father, sends him to the front lines to take supplies to his brothers and their military unit. And in the meantime, King Saul is getting desperate. So he offers a three-part award or a bribe, as it were, to any man who would fight and defeat Goliath. He offers the victor great riches, his own daughter in marriage, and freedom from taxation and service to the king at court, which, by the way, was, was tantamount to equality with the king, just to give you an idea of how desperate Saul was. And just about the time Goliath launches into his ultimatum, challenging the Israelites to send out a champion of their own, if they dare, David hears it, and he's incredulous as to why no one from the Israelites has gone out to defeat Goliath yet. And so he begins to pepper the soldiers with questions, and his brother gets angry and lets David have it. Why? Because David is too young. David is too experienced, too inexperienced. David is too naive. He's just a shepherd boy. He's a courier of food and supplies, nothing more. He has no business questioning the soldier's lack of willingness to fight, all of which was probably coming from a place of deep conviction on Eliab's part for not taking on Goliath himself. If you'll remember from the last chapter, the description of Eliab, Eliab uh, was himself very tall, very impressive physically. So David gets a tongue lashing from his own brother. Listen, this is the defining moment of this entire story because this is the moment when most people would have given up and walked away. Right? It's one thing to defy your own fears in the face of great adversity. It's another thing altogether to defy your own family and friends, those closest to you when facing great adversity. David could have easily walked back home that day embarrassed, defeated, and depressed because of what his own brother had said to him. 
in front of all the soldiers. But David stuck to his guns, not because he was prideful or resentful, but because he was a man after God's own heart and he knew what needed to be done regardless of who approved or disapproved of him doing it. This was the difference, you understand, between David and the rest of the Israelites. When the men of Israel referring to Goliath said, this man, David said, this uncircumcised Philistine. When the men of Israel said, surely he's come up to defy Israel, David said that he should defy the armies of the living God. When the men of Israel said, the man who kills him, David said, the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel. You see, this was the defining moment in the story when David decided that what God wanted from him superseded what anyone else wanted from him. And in that moment, Goliath was a dead man. He just didn't know it yet. This is the moment. The battle was won. Not when David chopped off Goliath's head, but the moment David refused to surrender to the other soldiers and his own brother's opinions about him. And it is such an important lesson for us. Never surrender to people's opinions about you. Okay, there will always be people around you or in your life who have all kinds of opinions about you. In fact, everybody you know has an opinion about you, so just get over it. There's nothing you can do to change it. The point is, don't live your life making decisions based on what other people think about you. Live your life making decisions based on what God thinks about you. David knew exactly what he was capable of based on who God said he was, and that's all he needed to know. It didn't matter what anyone else thought because he knew what God thought. So, so why do we care so much about what other people say about us? Well, it's because we don't really believe what God says about us. We don't. If, if we did, we wouldn't worry nearly as much as we do about other people's opinions. And did you notice that after David was rebuked by his brother, he didn't have to pray about what to do next? He wasn't the least bit deterred or even delayed in his decision to kill the loudmouthed giant because of what his brother or the other soldiers were saying about him. He didn't call a family meeting or go off to think about it first. He didn't wonder for one second if he was up to the task, uh, even though other people said he definitely wasn't because David knew what God had put in his heart and he believed what God said about him more than he believed other people's opinions about him. All right, look, as you pursue the call of God in your life, there will absolutely be people, sometimes your own people, family, friends, people close to you, people you care about who will give you bad advice, the wrong advice. Why? Because they disapprove of what you're planning to do. Right? And that can be because of jealousy or spite, but listen, often it's not because they mean you harm or, or want you to fail, but because they're not comfortable with the risk you're about to take and so they want you to play it safe because that's what they would do. And so they project their own fear onto you. And just to be clear, I'm not talking about someone uh, whose authority you're directly under, like a parent or spiritual authority in your life, okay? Teenagers, wherever you are. If your parents tell you to do or not do something, then that is God's will for your life, <laughs> all right? Unless it directly violates God's command in his word. Sorry if that disappoints you. What we're talking about here 
are those times in your life when you're pursuing the will of God that he has specifically called and equipped you and anointed you for and a friend or relative or some other concerned party counsels you to stop doing what you're doing. I've experienced it in my own life or to not go any further in pursuit of whatever it is you've been called to do. It's, it's a simple truth. Listen, good people can give bad advice. And so it's always good to ask yourself in those situations, whatever this person is telling me to do or not to do, does their advice reflect who God says I am or who they say I am? Because not only do we not always believe what God says about us, the fact is sometimes other people don't believe what God says about us either. Right? Just ask Joseph. Just ask David. Just ask any number of the men and women in the Bible who defied all odds. And that, that will reveal itself, by the way, in your own life. When you tell someone what you're about to do for God and then they tell you, you can't. You can't do that. You have no business doing that. Listen, you're not equipped or qualified to do that. You don't have what it takes, so go home and tend to your sheep. And those are the moments when you have to decide, am I going to believe what other people say about me? Or am I going to believe what God says about me? You see, sometimes... Sometimes the battle within you is greater than the battle before you. You hear me? Sometimes the battle within you is actually greater than the battle before you. The fact is nothing will keep you out of the fight faster than surrendering to other people's opinions. Charles Spurgeon once said, Many a man meets with more trouble from his friends than from his enemies. And when he has learned to overcome the depressing influence of prudent friends, he makes short work of the opposition of avowed adversaries. Let's finish the story for today, verses 31 through 37. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took, uh, took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. He must have been like a druse. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. So word gets back to Saul that there's finally someone who's willing to fight Goliath, and so he sends for the challenger, probably sensing tremendous relief, only to find out it's a teenager. The same young man who plays the liar for Saul when he needs to feel better. It must have been a profound letdown for Saul who explains to David that Goliath has been a man of war basically longer than you've been alive, David. But David doesn't flinch. He simply replies with, that's fine. Your servant uh, used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. Easy peasy. 
For he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this circumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. That's quite a confident speech from a shepherd boy who's never been to war. Right? And this was no lion or bear. As ferocious as those animals can be, Goliath was a giant warrior with weapons and armor and vast experience in the art of war. Right? And yet David was so confident that he would overcome the enemy that Saul was willing to forsake his own better judgment and send out this youth, this shepherd boy who played the liar to face the mighty Goliath. And do you know why David was so confident? Because all along the way, on those long days and nights alone in his father's fields, keeping the sheep, God was preparing David for this very moment. In ancient Palestine, both bears and lions were common, and sheep were a common food source for those hungry wild predators. But David understood that the predator had no claim on the sheep. The sheep belonged to the shepherd. So every time a wild animal tried to take what did not belong to them, David, full of the Holy Spirit, simply took back what had been given to him to care for by killing the lion and the bear with his own hands. And so as incredibly dangerous and risky as taking on Goliath was for David, it was no different than killing the lion or the bear. It was just another predator trying to take what did not belong to him, namely the land and the lives given to God's people. And so David knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that he would be successful over Goliath because his whole life had prepared him for this moment. Yet David, look, he also understood the gravity of this particular moment and the fact that it was going to change his life forever. Remember, he just came from the front lines of the battlefield, straight from tending the sheep in his father's fields. David was actively shepherding his father's sheep that morning when he came out to the battle lines. But notice how he begins his speech to Saul. Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. You see, not only was David confident that God had prepared him for this moment, he knew it would be a defining moment for the rest of his life, one that would mean his shepherding days were over. And so there was no way David was going back down, uh, going to back down now. It didn't matter how much fear Goliath struck in the hearts of God's people. It didn't matter how much anyone else, including his own family, doubted him. It didn't matter how incredibly hard the battle in front of him seemed to be. David was not backing down because he knew that his entire life had prepared him for this moment. And so he was determined to never surrender to hardship. And neither should we. Of course, hardship is going to come. We know that much is inevitable. We all know that. But it's not just about waiting it out, hoping to avoid as much hardship as possible in our lives and then doing our best to deal with it when it does come. Because the truth is, sometimes God calls us into hardship. He calls us to get into the fight to face the hardship head on, never surrendering no matter how hard it gets. And the reason you can be confident in facing that hardship is because he has been preparing you for it your entire life. Listen, God will never call you to something he hasn't prepared you for. You may not realize today what he's preparing you for tomorrow. Right? I'm, sure, I'm sure when David was confronting bears and lions in his father's fields, 
he, was, he had no idea at that point one day he was going to confront a giant Philistine warrior on a battlefield. Right? But that's exactly what God was preparing him for. You may not realize today what God is preparing you for tomorrow, but that's exactly what he's doing. Always. There's always a purpose for every struggle, every difficulty, every obstacle, every hardship in your life. And part of that purpose is to prepare you for something greater. It is a part of God's process in your life. David was anointed as the next king of Israel, but that wouldn't come for several years later. Why? Because God had to prepare David for that role, which started with tending sheep, being faithful in that. Then it graduated to killing lions and bears to protect the sheep. And then it graduated to being the king's armor bearer and personal assistant in the king's court. And then it graduated to confronting a giant enemy warrior in front of the entire Israelite army. And by the way, there was still much more hardship to come in David's life before he became king. You see, God made David a promise. But when God makes you a promise, there is always a process to seeing that promise fulfilled. Sorry, no shortcuts. And a part of that process is always hardship at points along the way. And so look, uh, on your journey to possessing God's promise for your life, there will be people who stand in your way. Maybe even some who are close to you. That's part of the process. At times, circumstances will conspire against you like a great giant between you and that promise. That's part of the process. At times, people who you are desperately depending on will abandon you. That's part of the process. At times, you'll experience heartache and loss that seem beyond anything you can recover from. That is part of the process. At times, you'll grow beyond weary, physically, emotionally, and spiritually empty. Listen to me. That is part of the process, and it is in those moments, those seasons even of loss and hurt and loneliness and fear and disappointment and great struggle when you will have to fight for the promise. You're going to have to get up Pick your weapons up and get in the fight because the fight, the hardship is always a part of the process. And listen, the, the process is what makes you who you are. It's how God prepares you to be able to possess the promise when the time comes. So, so listen, don't surrender to hardship when your plans don't go as planned. Because that's just another part of the process. You see... The life of a Christian was never meant to be one of surrender. God never calls us to surrender. He calls us to submission because remember, surrender is an act of resignation. Submission is a call to action. A call to not give up, but to get up, pick your weapons up, and get in the fight. 
Yet at times when you're looking at the battle before you, sometimes fear will try to stop you dead in your tracks. Sometimes other people will try to keep you from getting in the fight. Yet other times it's simply going to seem too hard to keep going. And that's when you have to remember this is exactly what he's been preparing you for your entire life. This fight, this battle, this hardship you're facing, it is a part. It is a necessary part of you becoming exactly who he created you to be in order to prepare you for something even greater. And so, yes, it's going to be tough at times. Yes, people are going to get in your way. And yes, there will be days when you will have to fight through the fear of the battle before you. But I'm telling you, I'm telling you even better. God is promising you that you will make it. You will get there. As long as you never give up. As long as you never surrender. Let's pray.